This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today's story is about nativist riots in Philadelphia in May and July 1844. In the years leading up to 1844, the immigrant population of Philadelphia and the surrounding districts was growing, especially the population of Irish and Catholic immigrants. Native-born Americans and immigrant Protestants were alarmed by the influx, and tensions were growing in the early 1840s. The issue of Bible reading in schools became especially heated. School children in Philadelphia public schools began their day reading from the King James Bible and sang Protestant hymns. Catholic parents objected, and in 1842, Catholic Bishop Francis Patrick Kenrick wrote a letter to the Board of Controllers of Public Schools asking that Catholic children be allowed to read instead from the Bible used by Catholics at the time, known as the Douay Bible. The Board agreed that children could read whatever version of the Bible their parents preferred, and that children should not be forced to participate in religious activities. Nativists took this as an attack on Protestantism and rallied others to their cause joining with a nativist political party that launched in New York in June of 1843, called the American Republican Party. In 1844, the agitation reached a boiling point when a Kensington school director named Hugh Clark, who was Catholic, suggested that the Bible should not be read in school at all, at least until the school board could develop a policy that Catholics and Protestants both approved. Protestant nativists used this incident to rally support. On Friday, May 3, 1844, the American Republican Party gathered in the heavily Irish Kensington district, but were chased away. On Monday, May 6, they assembled in Kensington again, this time in greater numbers. When it began to rain, the rally moved to a nearby market, where fighting broke out between the neighborhood Irish Catholics and the nativists. 18-year-old nativist George Schiffler was shot and killed, the first fatality of the scuffle, and several more people were killed as the fighting continued. A posse organized by County Sheriff Morton McMichael proved powerless to stop the violence. On Tuesday, May 7th, a nativist mob marched into Kensington and gunfire broke out. The mobs set fires throughout the district, including to the Hibernia Fire Station and to local homes. The sheriff called for help, and the 1st Brigade of the Pennsylvania Militia, commanded by Brigadier General George Cadwallader, responded, dispersing the crowds, although they could do little to stop them from starting more fires. On Wednesday, May 8th, mobs again set fires, including to Hugh Clark's house, to a Catholic seminary, and to two Catholic churches. At the Second Catholic Church, St. Augustine, 
which was within the city limits of Philadelphia itself, Mayor John Moran Scott pleaded for the rioters to stop. But they threw stones at him and continued to set fire, cheering when the steeple fell. The violence ended by Friday, May 10th, but only after forces, including citizen posses, city police, militia companies from other districts, and U.S. Army and Navy troops, showed up in force to quell it. Over the course of the riots, at least 14 people were killed, and another 50 injured. There was an uneasy calm in Philadelphia for the next eight weeks. Preparing for more violence, the Catholic Church of St. Philip de Neri in the heavily nativist district of Southwark started to stockpile weapons, authorized to do so by Pennsylvania Governor David R. Porter. Although rumored July 4th attacks never materialized, on Friday, July 5th, thousands of nativists gathered at St. Philip de Neri to demand the weapons. The sheriff and two aldermen searched the church and removed some of the muskets. The crowd refused to leave and demanded a further search. The new search party, which included 17 nativists, found further weapons, but instead of removing the weapons, the search party remained in the church all night. A company of city guards cleared the streets. Saturday, July 6th, passed without bloodshed, but the tension increased. Cadwallader ordered the crowds to disperse, to no avail. The military presence grew, and the nativists began to arm themselves, including with a cannon from a nearby wharf. Former U.S. Congressman Charles Naylor and several others were arrested in the tumult and held in the church. The crowd reassembled on Sunday, July 7th, and forced the militia to surrender the church and release the prisoners. When Cadwallader and his militia returned that evening, they tried to clear the area around the church, but the crowd attacked the militia. The militia responded by firing on the crowd, killing two and wounding more. The mob counterattacked, and for hours they battled in the streets of Southwark, fighting with muskets and cannon fire. By the time the fighting ended in the early morning on Monday, July 8th, at least 15 people had been killed, both soldiers and rioters, and at least 50 more were injured. Troops ordered by Governor Porter remained in the city for a few days to hold the peace, eventually beginning to withdraw on July 10th. The riots had lasting effects, including in how Philadelphia was policed, and eventually in a consolidation of the city in 1854. For his part, Bishop Kenrick decided that creating Catholic schools would be a better plan than trying to influence public education. By 1860, there were 17 Catholic parish elementary schools in Philadelphia. To learn more about the riots, I'm joined now by Zachary Schrag, professor of history at George Mason University, to discuss his recently published book about the riots, The Fires of Philadelphia, Citizen Soldiers, Nativists, and the 1844 riots over the soul of a nation, which was one of the sources I consulted for this introduction. Hello, thank you so much for joining me uh, today. I'm excited to talk about the nativist riots of 1844. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So I want to start by asking what got you interested in this topic? So this is a different time period than uh, your your other uh, historic works. And uh, I imagine a book like this must take years to research and write so a, a great deal of time that you're spending in 1844 Philadelphia. So what got you interested in this? Uh, so you're correct that I was trained as a 20th century historian, and my first books were about uh, post-1945 United States domestic policy, essentially. And I thought the next project was also going to be about the 1960s, uh, specifically about riots in the 1960s, which for a scholar of urban America is a very important topic, really one of the events or series of events that created urban history as we now know it, were the riots of the 1960s, uh, including the 1968 riot in my hometown of Washington, D.C., uh, whose reverberations continue. So I, I thought, you know, maybe I could do a background chapter on the 19th century. You know, I just assumed not much happened, that, you know, they brought out the militia, whatever that was, and that the real history of riot control would start sometime uh, around World War I with the introduction of tear gas. Uh, so I started pulling on that thread of the sweater and, um, it, uh, it landed me back in the Jacksonian period. Uh, specifically, um, I was interested in the role of the National Guard, which, mm -hmm. you know, right to our day is a major actor in trying to preserve order or, uh, restore order during urban riots. In 2020, I believe more than 30 states activated their National Guard, uh, in order to respond to protests uh, about police shootings. Uh, and that begins again, really in the 1830s and the 1840s, as the volunteer militia, as they were then called, is increasingly called out for riot duty. And even within that period, the event that really, I think, solidifies the role of the militia in riot control are the two sets of riots in Philadelphia in May and July of 1844. Yeah, that's interesting. I, As I was reading it, I kept thinking about Kent State. So my parents were at Kent State in May 1970, you know, so that I, I've been hearing about that my whole life. And the second episode I did of the podcast was about the Jackson State shootings, uh, also in 1970. And so I, you know, I kept sort of drawing these parallels in my mind. Uh, so that that's so interesting to think about that as sort of the, the genesis for thinking about uh, the this event, these events in Philadelphia. I also want to ask about at the very end of the book, you have this note on sources, uh, which I loved and could have kept reading forever. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you uh, to, to talk some about that, about the kind of sources that you used, you used a ton of sources in, in writing this and how you navigated these different sources that, that were very much conflicting. And of course, we don't have, you know, uh, video evidence of what happened then or anything to, to track it down like we might today. So what that process looked like. Yeah. So this was part of the reason the book did in fact take many years and uh, turn out to be a book rather than a chapter and what I thought would be a longer history of riot control is that the sources are amazing. And uh, there are some manuscript sources. Uh, I think my favorite is Colonel Pleasanton's diary. He had really good handwriting, which is always a pleasure, but he also was very, uh, very good writer and, and very nasty about the people he met. So there are lots of really good quips in there. Uh, but most of the sources I used were newspapers. And one of the fascinations about writing about this period 
you know, in the 1840s, but also in 21st century, is to understand the newspapers as the social media of their day. There were some reporters out there, really just a handful of working reporters in Philadelphia. A lot of the content of the newspapers was actually either transcripts of trials, uh, which, of course, are very rich. You get lots of verbatim dialogue of people reporting what they said. Uh, the newspapers would re reprint official documents uh, from the authorities, from the state militia. They would reprint party platforms. Uh, they would reprint reports of meetings. They would print people's cards, what we would you know, now think of a letter to the editor, uh, might have someone just writing in with a first-person account, here's what I saw, here's what I did, and then someone else would take offense at that and write back, oh no, this is really what happened. You would have advertisements uh, for people's businesses, but also for meetings saying, we are going to have a political rally at such and such a place and such and such a time. And so, uh, and then the newspapers were all competing with each other. There were more than a dozen daily newspapers in Philadelphia, uh, some Democrats, some Whig, eventually some are nativist, uh, representing the anti-immigration forces. There was a Catholic newspaper, there was a militia newspaper, uh, those were weeklies or bi-weeklies, there were Presbyterian newspapers. Uh, there are neutral newspapers that are never really neutral. Uh, so it becomes this very rich conversation that I was wading into and listening to so many different voices all kind of shouting at each other, uh, not only about the facts of what happened, but also about their meaning. So then you take all of these sources and you have to put them into this narrative, which I assume could have been thousands of pages long if you <laughs> used everything. So you have to be judicious and think about what to use and, and how to use it and how to decide between them. And I wanted to ask you specifically about this process, because you also have had another book come out this year uh, that is a guide to historical research. So how do you take all of these amazing sources, some of which conflict, and how do you put that into a narrative, figure out what is and isn't important to highlight, what is and isn't relevant, how you tell this story? So uh, I, I did intend this to be a narrative. Uh, this is a book that you know I hope uh, people in the scholarly profession enjoy, but in many ways is designed more for people outside of the university. Uh, mm -hmm. the, you know, most Americans have not heard of these riots uh, unless they went to Catholic school, in which case they may well have, because <laughs> this is something that Catholic Americans remember as an important part of their history. But I did want to make it a good story for everyone, and a key way to do that is with characters. I think scholarly history can rely very heavily on strong characters. My previous books, which were more for a scholarly audience, uh, certainly have those. But with more popular narrative history, uh, characters are crucial. And so I didn't have quite as much choice as someone who's, say, writing a history of the Civil War, where you might have you know hundreds of people to choose from. Uh, but I did try a few different things to uh, figure out who my major characters were. And I ended up with four to represent different elements of Philadelphia in the 1840s. So for the establishment Philadelphia, I have the wonderful character, uh, Brigadier General George Cadwallader. His family goes back to really the founding of Pennsylvania. One of his ancestors is more or less on the ship with William Penn. And even to this day, the Cadwalladers are a, a presence in Philadelphia. And one of the streets in the, in the May riot, one of the streets is named after his family, one right? The street is named after, it turns out that one of the stores that is ransacked is on his land. He owns all <laughs> these lots all over town. 
Uh, so he, yeah, he's a very wealthy patrician. He could have just sat at home and collected money. And, and some Philadelphians of his class did that, uh, sit around in clubs and race horses. And, and he did that too. Uh, but he also had a real sense of noblesse oblige. And uh, he did not want to get involved in civilian politics. He really wanted to serve his community by serving in the militia. Uh, so he, this was an elected post. Uh, he, he runs for brigadier general at a fairly young age and, and wins in 1842 and uh, becomes, again, the, the sort of major uh, commander within uh, the county of Philadelphia. There are three brigadier generals and then a major general above him. But really, uh, George Cadwallader, the brigadier general of the first brigade, is the most important figure. And fortunately, he is something of a pack rat. Uh, his papers are up at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and uh, they are quite helpful. Uh, they're not as introspective as Pleasanton's diaries. Uh, his handwriting is certainly not as good, uh, but we still have some sense of, of where he was and who was writing to him. And so I'm very grateful to him for, for keeping that paper. Uh, the second major character is Bishop Francis Patrick Kenrick. He later becomes an archbishop. And uh, I didn't have a lot of manuscript material from him. There are certainly some letters uh, that survive, but fortunately, most of his letters and his diary uh, were not only published, but also translated because he was a very learned man who kept both his diary and his personal correspondence in Latin. And uh, I had some Latin in college, but not enough to really do extensive research in Latin. So I'm very grateful to the Catholic scholars of the early 20th century for translating all of that for me. And, uh, you know, he, is, too, is a very fascinating figure. He's, he's born in Ireland, he's educated in Rome, and then he goes out, essentially, to what he considers a heathen land, which is the predominantly Protestant United States. Uh, first, he's in Bardstown, Kentucky, for a while, and then he is sent to Philadelphia to kind of clean things up. Um, the Philadelphia Catholic Church is in some crisis in the early 1830s. Kenrick comes in, he gets the layman, he gets the priests, he gets them all in line, and he's there to serve this growing Catholic community uh, that is increasingly Irish as more and more Irish immigrants like him arrive. And part of that is building churches all around the county. And that becomes uh, a way for the Catholic church to become more visible, which uh, is a bit of a problem for uh, Protestants who are skeptical of the Catholic church or afraid of it. Uh, the third character is the wildest. That's Louis Levin. He is uh, born in the United States in Charleston, South Carolina, but his parents are immigrants. He is born Jewish, but probably converts. It's pretty hard to nail that down, but he does marry uh, first one Christian woman. Then when she dies, he marries again in the church. And he says a lot of things that suggest that he has uh, converted to some kind of Protestantism, pro probably a non-denominational form. And he uh, he goes, he's drunk at one point, he goes bankrupt, a very colorful uh, life. He gets in knife fights, probably a rifle duel, but then he finds some kind of religion. Um, around 1842, he sobers up, again, probably converts around this time, and becomes first a temperance crusader, and then a voice against the Catholic Church. And he is a leader of this growing nativist movement that is an anti-immigrant movement that's also an anti-Catholic movement um, and is there sort of riling up the younger men of Philadelphia um, into mobs. So he's, he's my leading anti-Catholic. And then the fourth figure uh, is probably the one I like the most personally, um, though in some ways the most frustrating to get at because he left the, the fewest documents. And that's uh, the sheriff, Morton McMichael who is 
as best I can tell, trying to be a friend to everyone. Uh, some He starts off as a Democrat. Later, he joins the Whigs. But there are a lot of people sort of crossing party lines to vote for him. He's very popular. He is constantly trying to make peace among these different factions. Uh, he, you know, seems to, you know, try to protect the African-American community when they are threatened. He protects the Irish community when they are threatened. But he's also, you know, palling, palling around with some of the nativists. And, you know, later on, he becomes an important figure in the consolidation of Philadelphia. Uh, in 1854, he becomes a, the mayor of Philadelphia and is one of the founders of what we now know as Fairmont Park. So there's a statue of him up there. So these are my four figures. And once you have those sort of four major figures, then it's a question of, you know, watching them move on the chessboard and trying to uh, use them to tell the stories of these broader communities that they represent, the Catholic community, the anti-Catholic community, the establishment community, the different political parties. It's funny that you say chessboard. I Did you start sketching out like on paper to sort of figure out like these people were here and these because I was trying to sort of keep track of all of it in my mind, but I, I only had to read it <laughs> to actually figure yeah. it out to write it. Like, how did you make sense of all that? I did. And, and it's frustrating because you know, if you read screenwriting books, you're trying to build up to these climactic scenes where the characters, you know, finally stare each other down. And for the most part, that doesn't happen. I mean, Michael is there everywhere. Like he's, he's really on foot. He has a a newborn child at one point, he leaves him at home and goes out into the riots. But um, Kenrick, uh, you know, he's a peacemaker, he's a man of the cloth, he does not want to be out there uh, facing people down. So I can't place him at any scene of violence. Mm. And then uh, the thing about Levin and Cadwallader is uh, I don't know that they were ever on the same block or in the same room at the same time. Uh, mm. And that was frustrating to me for a while. And then I realized, oh, there's probably a reason for this, which is Levin is kind of guy who will leave as soon as the first shot is fired. Uh, he, he does get in fights, but, but when the numbers are really bad against him, he's going to sort of skedaddle off. He finds a taxi or something and leaves. And Cadwallader, the big knock against him is he doesn't show up until a little too late. So, you know, just as Levin is walking off the stage, Cadwallader is rushing on. And so they never have the big showdown you would want in a movie treatment. But, you know, again, as a historian, I say, oh, there, this is actually very telling. Um, that, you know, Levin is going to rile up the mob and let them do the fighting and the dying. Uh, Cadwallader is going to come in and again, he, who got shot at. I don't know if I believe that he had, you know, 12 bullet holes through his coat as one of the accounts has it, but I do believe that he got hit on the knee with a bottle or a brick or something. I've seen, you know, he was definitely, uh, in people's faces. And, uh, you know, later on, in uh, the Mexican War, he shows a lot of personal courage as well. So I have no reason to doubt that he was physically very present. A lot of these same things are happening in other places, too. You talk about New York and Baltimore as as other sites where there are these sort of warring factions. There's immigrants, there's also nativists, uh, you know, and there's this growing Catholic population. But nowhere else does the violence erupt the way it does in Philadelphia in 1844. Why do you think that is? Like, what is it about Philadelphia? What is it about that moment that makes it so much worse? So I'm not sure there's a deep reason here. Uh, You know, historians talk about contingency, and you see this in, in riots as well, that, you know, a crowd may be on edge and something mm-hmm. happens. Someone throws a brick through a window. Someone gets knocked down with a brick. Um, if you've seen the movie Do the Right Thing, 
by Spike Lee, there's a great portrayal of this where it's the trash can through the plate glass window that turns a crowd into a mob, essentially. And that's uh, very uh, plausible, very realistic if you know about kind of crowd events. And so I think we could have had riots like this in New York or Boston or Baltimore, possibly Cincinnati, certainly Montreal. And there's a great book about Montreal in the 1840s uh, by my friend Dan Horner. So um, and, and there certainly was violence in Europe as well, in Ireland and England. Um, so in that sense, Philadelphia is part of this Atlantic ring of uh, anxiety about Catholicism anxiety about Irish migration in multiple directions. And it had kind of the bad luck to be the place where it turns into actual artillery duels. So uh, I don't want to, you know, say that it was inevitable. Um, you know, that said, uh, there weren't, two, you know, Philadelphia was a major center of Irish immigration, and that certainly uh, contributed to it. And uh, you know, beyond that, though, again, I think a little bit of luck in a different way. We could have been talking about the New York riot or the Brooklyn riots of 1844 just as easily. So when I was doing the episode about Jackson State and thinking about why didn't they learn more from Kent State, but that was only a 15 day window between the two events. So how is it that between May and July, which is a couple of months in the exact same city with a lot of the exact same people involved, they didn't have a better plan uh, in July to avoid the bloodshed that happened? Or di- or is this the best plan they could have had? You know, is is that the the answer to it is that given the, the forces that there just wasn't a better outcome that could have happened? So I think what they hit is a dilemma that shows up after Kent State, that shows up in 2020, that shows up in 2021, which is it's really hard to figure out what you want from a riot. Uh, you know, from a sort of godlike stance, what would be a, a good thing? Because a, a country where no one is allowed to gather in the streets and make themselves heard is not a free country. Uh, this is right in the Constitution. The Constitution First Amendment says, uh, yes, there's, you know, free speech, freedom of religion. That's nice. There's also the uh, freedom peaceably to assemble. And so the framers of the First Amendment understood that mass assembly is an inherent part of democracy as important as free speech or freedom of the press. So that you need you need to have some room for that. Uh, then what happens often, you know, far too often is that you get a mostly peaceful crowd. You know, you could have thousands of people of whom a much smaller percentage, maybe dozens or hundreds of people, but maybe just dozens uh, who are going to cross the line into property damage. They're going to smash some windows. um, You know, maybe they'll loot a store, set a police car on fire, some kind of damage. And then within that group, you've got an even smaller contingent who are willing to do bodily damage, who are going to throw rocks at the authorities, um, the police or the troops, whoever it is, or maybe um, they're going to try to lynch or kill uh, some unpopular minority. Uh, it could be a racial minority. Obviously, you know, mo- most of the mob violence in American history is against racial minorities, but in this case, it's a religious minority. It could be a political minority. We see that in Baltimore in 1812. And so if you are the representatives of order, how do you try to protect, first of all, human life, secondly, property, and then 
third also the freedom of assembly all at the same time. And that is not a problem that anyone has solved, not in the United States, not in any other democracy. Uh, authoritarian governments have been much easier. They just say, oh, just shoot everyone, <laughs> right? Um, and, and they do in the 19th century and, and 20th and 21st centuries. That's very easy. But if you're trying to balance these imperatives, it turns out to be very hard. And so you see this in Philadelphia in 1844, after the first round of riots, there's this massive town meeting outside of what we now call Independence Hall, and they're debating this. And they're, they're saying, oh, you know, we really can't tolerate this anymore. If there's a crowd out there and they're not obeying curfew, uh, let us treat them as pirates, uh, which means they can be shot on sight. But the same meeting says, but really, if fathers and, and employers would just tell their young men to stay at home, we wouldn't need any of this. So they're treating them at once as kind of innocent youths who just are slightly naughty and also as pirates who are the enemies of humanity. And unfortunately, uh, that is the that's the dilemma right there. And, and they haven't solved it by July of 1844, and they certainly haven't solved it by May of 1970. Yeah, well, and, you know, I was reading your book uh, uh, with the backdrop of these hearings going on about the January 6th commission and rioters, you know, attacking the Capitol building and and thinking through that, you know, again, obviously, there's a line crossed at some point there. But, you know, how, how do you stop that from happening in the first place? What do you do? How do you minimize loss of life and damage of property? And so, yes, clearly, we still haven't solved all of these problems. <laughs> I, you know, and it seems like there's similar motivations there too, right? Like, I, as I was reading this, as I was seeing what, uh, what the nativists were saying, the kinds of language they were using, I felt like there were reverberations today with a lot of what you know, maybe uh, the mega America first kind of crowd might be saying about, uh, you know, people are taking our jobs or people are coming in and, and taking over, you know, the are do you see those same kinds of um, maybe impulses? Uh, in, not exactly the same kind of movement. Obviously, it's not against the Irish. It's not anti-Catholic necessarily, although maybe, but, uh, you know, that that there are some through lines there. Uh, very much so. So the, the nativism of the 1840s and, and then the 1850s uh, combines two different streams that have kind of separated today. So today, it strikes me that, you know, that there's one brand of nativism uh, that is primarily economic uh, and is primarily targeting Latinos, uh, uh, people from Mexico, people from Central America saying, oh, these are fine people, but uh, they are poor. And they're going to take jobs that Americans should have and mm -hmm. will lower wages for American born citizens. Um, they are coming to our country. They are, you know, without authorization. They are, you know, taking votes. So that's kind of anxiety about a large group of people, um, who threaten American prosperity. Um, and then the second version of 21st century American uh, nativism is against uh, religious minority Muslims. And you have these, um, you know, horror stories, uh, about Sharia that people are freaking out that there's this, uh, group, uh, religious minority that somehow is incapable of true American citizenship because their religious loyalties conflict with their political loyalties or overwhelm their political loyalties. If you combine those two, the economic anxiety and kind of the religious anxiety, then you get 19th century nativism, 
where the Irish are both poor people who are seeking opportunity and coming in very large numbers, and they are members, again, of a religious minority. And the claim of the nativists is that anyone who is loyal to the Pope, uh, who is, after all, a European monarch, technically, cannot also be a good American Mm -hmm. citizen. And uh, so in that sense, it's all very familiar. It would be very hard for me to identify, you know, anything that was said in the 1840s that isn't being said right now or vice versa. It's, you know, again, uh, the narrative arc, as with riot control, (laughs) is more of a narrative flat line. So uh, the other topic I wanted to talk about was in the 1830s, 40s in Philadelphia and maybe elsewhere, there are these uh, volunteer fire companies. And this is just the the craziest thing to think about, that they would uh, sort of race to see who could get to the fire first, jostle each other out of the way, even, you know, maybe damage each other's property to to sort of be the first group and then actively fight. So can you talk a little bit about what is going on? And, you know, uh, did this last, was this just in Philadelphia? Is this a common thing in the US at that time? Like what, what is going on with these fire companies? Yeah, this is very strange. So, you know, the, uh, Volunteer fire companies, obviously, we still have them. My my home is protected in part by one. They trace their lineage back to Benjamin Franklin, I think. And, and for the most part, they've been forced for good. But in the 1830s and, and 1840s, in some cities, not all, uh, they turn into this very uh, mixed kind of group where, yes, they are fighting fires some of the time, but they spend a lot of their time fighting each other. Um, these are, you know, young men, very macho. And whoever gets to the fire plug first has the honor of fighting the fire unless another company cuts their hose or beats them up. And so fires become either brawls themselves or they wait until after the fire and start hitting each other with their axes and their other fire tools, their metal trumpets. Or maybe they just wait until the next weekend and raid each other's firehouses and um, sometimes fatally. Sometimes people are shot. Um, Amy Greenberg has a wonderful book on this, Cause for Alarm. Uh, she points out it's not every American city, but uh, Philadelphia and Baltimore were right up there with uh, some of the worst. And uh, this persists, uh, you know, well beyond the 1840s. It's not until the 1850s, I believe, that Philadelphia basically professionalizes its firefighting and does away with the worst of this violence. Uh, and, and then I, I should say, beyond the formal membership of these fire companies, uh, which sometimes don't accept members until they're 21, you might have hangers-on, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are there only to fight or to provide protection. Um, so they'll, they'll known as runners, they'll run along with the engine and try to protect it and, and keep each other out. And I do think this explains uh, some of the violence of 1844. At the spot where the violence first breaks out on May 6th, 1844, it's in a market house. And just across this vacant lot, there is a firehouse, the Hibernia Hose House, which obviously is an Irish-affiliated firehouse. And as best I can tell, in the middle of this riot over immigration and Catholicism and politics, there's another miniature fire riot where a bunch of teenagers and 20-year-olds go and attack this firehouse, and they end up uh, destroying it and and the apparatus inside. So um, one of the things I was trying to figure out with this is how much of this violence is unusual and how much of it is just kind of building on the normal uh, violence of the city. 
one of the you know things I was noticing is that there are a lot of people who are just shooting each other by accident. Uh, you know, as I'm reading these newspapers, um, people are you know bringing muskets home from their militia drills and shooting their cousins or you know leaving the musket loaded in a corner so their sisters kill themselves. Uh, you have people firing salutes with cannon and blowing their arms off. Um, you have one you know situation where in a period of, of relative calm after the first sets of riots, a man starts stockpiling weapons. And this is, you know, of course, very familiar to us in the 21st century. It's like, oh, this is not going to end well, is it? And in fact, it doesn't. He um, shoots his niece, I believe, and uh, she later dies in, in really what, you know, feels like a, a very 21st century incident. So it is a, a, a very well-armed city, unfortunately. You could you could buy um, powder and shot pretty much at, at corner store and guns were not too hard to find. Um, so in some ways it's remarkable that the death toll wasn't greater. Yeah. Well, and I, I live in Chicago, so, you know, sort of always in the, the shadow of the, the great fire of Chicago and kept thinking as they were deliberately setting fire to, to buildings, like, ah, oh, this could end really, really badly. And, you know, and the fire of course spreads, but not nearly something like the great fire of Chicago. <laughs> But yeah, it seems like the death toll could have been much, much worse. Yes. Uh, and, and uh, you know, there are sort of these rumors going around that maybe there's going to be a third wave. Uh, Kidwallader orders a lot of ammunition. He is uh, clearly expecting things to at least potentially go very badly. And he wants to be prepared because the second wave of riots in July of 1844, pretty much uh, exhausts everyone in his brigade and, and the neighboring brigades. They end up bringing in troops from around Philadelphia. They're thinking about calling in the U.S. Army as well. Uh, no one knows how this is going to happen, you know, really going to end. And uh, eventually, you know, some of their worst nightmares come true in the New York draft riots of 1863. And that is a, a larger event that has some echoes of the 1844 riots. So is there anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about that, that people know about this story? You know, I do think that we have all of these stories, as you say, continuing. We've got the religion story, we've got the immigration story, and we've got the riot control story. And, you know, unfortunately, they all kind of converged in January of 2021 uh, with the storming of the Capitol. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, I think this story of Philadelphia in the 1840s is far more relevant than we might wish. I, I wish I could say, oh, you know, this is all in the distant past. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But in fact, you know, this is very much present with us. And, you know, to some extent around the world as well, because obviously we've got a lot of countries that are, you know, dealing with violence against religious minorities um, and trying to figure out what level of policing, what level of military response is appropriate to try to tamp down that violence rather than making it worse. So how can people get copies of The Fires of Philadelphia and your other book, The Princeton Guide to Historical Research? Uh, well, uh, they you know are available uh, in many cases at your local bookstore. Um, friend just sent me a nice photo of The Fires of Philadelphia on the shelf uh, at her local bookstore. Um, you can get them online. Uh, you can you know get them through the publisher. And um, so, yeah, just... But, you know, certainly ask at your local bookstore. That's always a, a great way to support people, especially at this time when they're getting less foot traffic. So, you know, I know when I've got books I want, I've got a, a nice bookstore a couple miles away and uh, they've been very good about sort of putting things out on the sidewalk. So uh, if you're concerned about 
going indoors. And um, so I, I hope people are continuing to support their bookstores until we get back to a better public health. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, a long book, The Fires of Philadelphia, but uh, as you said, it's narrative, it's really readable. It's, you know, you get, you get sort of like, oh, what's going to happen next? You know, who, who, how are they finally going to get out of this? So I, I think it's great. And a lot of pictures too. I mean, that's the one thing yes. we can't do on the podcast is, you know, the publisher, I, I said, oh, can we do a picture for every chapter? They said, go ahead. And if there are a couple more you want to fit in. Um, so, uh, you know, this was at the dawn of photography. I have just one photograph in there, but they had lithographs and woodcuts and all kinds of uh, wonderful imagery in there. So uh, I, I do hope people have a chance to look at the book as well as to read it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.